BakerBots LLP provides podcasts for educational purposes only. They are not legal advice. This communication may constitute attorney advertising. Welcome to the Environmental Evolutions Podcast, where we explore the changing landscape of environmental law and policy. I'm your host, Megan Burge, coming to you from my closet in Joshua Tree, California. Today's episode is a standalone episode on per or polyfluoroalkyl substances, better known as PFAS or PFOA. They're used in everything from waterproof jackets and nonstick pans to coatings for textiles, paper products, and in some firefighting phones. PFAS also are used in the aerospace, photographic imaging, semiconductor, automotive construction, electronics, and aviation industries. In today's episode, we're going to start off with providing background on PFAS. We're going to move to providing an update on recent regulatory moves by the Biden administration and then close out with what we are watching for in the coming year. I'm excited to have with me today two of my partners. Alexander Dunn and Stephanie Bergeron-Purdue. Alex and Stephanie each recently joined Baker Box. Alex from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and Stephanie from the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. I'm thrilled to have Alex and Stephanie here to talk about these issues. They worked on them while they were in the government and are now looking at them through the lens of private practice. Alex, Stephanie, thank you for being here today. Megan, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. This is Alex. And this is Stephanie. Thank you so much, Megan, for the introduction. And for the listeners, there's going to be a pop quiz at the end to see if you can identify everybody's voices. So with that, Alex, why is there so much concern about PFAS? Well, Megan, PFAS have been found in all sorts of products, and they are really, really useful. But they happen to be very long-lasting in the environment and in the human body. PFAS have actually been found on the Earth as far away as the Arctic. And according to the Centers for Disease Control, many studies have examined the possible relationship between PFAS levels in blood and harmful health effects in people. Alex, what do we know about PFAS at this point? Well, the science on PFAS is still evolving, uh, but we basically do know that PFAS may lead to the types of health effects such as increased cholesterol levels, uh, decreased vaccine response in children, liver enzyme changes, increased risk of high blood pressure in pregnant women, and increased risk of kidney or testicular cancer. But it is true, scientists are really still learning a lot about the health effects of exposure to PFAS. Alex, I said that I was going to refer to all of this under the umbrella of PFAS, but is that really the term we should be using? Well, PFAS is the umbrella term, as you said, and it refers to a family of perfluoroalkyl substances. And the family contains about 600 members in commerce today. Wow. What's the difference between these chemicals? Well, all PFAS are definitely not alike. They have different chemical formulations. 
some are called longer chain, shorter chain. But what's important to note is that most of the activity in the regulatory space at the federal and state level have focused on two particular members of this family, PFOA and PFOS, or PFOA and PFOS. So let's talk about some of those regulations, Alex. Where do we stand today here in the U.S.? Well, this is when things really start to get a little bit hairy. Um, In May 2016, EPA announced lifetime health advisories for PFOS and PFOA in drinking water. And everybody cares about their drinking water. But these advisories were non-enforceable and non-regulatory. And the, and the value that EPA selected was 70 parts per trillion combined for these two PFAS. Well, this really sent states into a frenzy because these weren't regulatory levels, they were advisory. And you can just imagine that communities across the country started getting concerned. That's actually a great point for us to turn to Stephanie with a couple of questions here. How did Texas react to the advisories? Actually, in 2011, TCEQ had developed toxicity factors for 16 perfluoro compounds for PFCs, including PFOA and PFOS, which were used and are used in calculating risk-based values for soil, groundwater, sediment, and fish tissue. EPA issued its health advisories as Alex mentioned, for PFOA and PFOS in drinking water in 2016. These are very different programmatic contexts. PCEQ had proceeded with utilization of its remediation values because PFCs do not break down, which means potential exposure will persist, and contamination would otherwise not be addressed. Well, tell me more about TCEQ's regulatory role here. It is mostly in the remediation program and specifically groundwater contamination that TCAQ addresses PFOA and PFOS. For example, Department of Defense sites, because of the use of firefighting foam, have been focused on by TCAQ. An important takeaway is that because of PFAS, their unique properties, remediation requires innovative technologies, for example, carbon filters for groundwater. And and this is not unlike other groundwater uh, plumes where there's contamination. They can extend several miles, which can result in a significant number of private wells or public wells even requiring filters. It still sounds a bit like the Wild West out there. Was every state doing something different? I think it's fair to say that each state, each individual state, is trying to be protective and proactive. And that can result in variation when you're talking about this many chemicals with unique signature chains. It makes regulation inherently challenging. It is an inherently a very scientific, complex review and accordingly takes time. What are your thoughts on how this could be resolved? Well, I'll take that, Megan. So in 2017, EPA developed a comprehensive PFAS action plan. And it was an all of EPA plan designed to pull from all the different statutes to try to address PFAS. 
I mean, EPA really made PFAS reduction a priority in the Trump administration, also in the Obama administration. So, Alex, did that fix the concerns? Well, it definitely helped, but there was so much to do. For example, once EPA started listening to communities all around the country, the expectations went up. Then Congress got involved and added 175 PFAS compounds to the toxic release inventory reporting requirements for affected companies. And those reports are due actually this July. So we have more information coming in, but is that enough to solve the problem? Well, not really. I mean, information coming in doesn't really address some of the cleanup issues that Stephanie was talking about. So EPA has a bunch of agenda items in front of it. Agency is deciding whether to list PFAS as hazardous substances under the Superfund law or as hazardous waste under RICRA. The agency's also trying to decide whether they should keep going chemical by chemical. And as we said, there are several hundred of them or maybe regulate PFAS as a class of compounds all at once. Well, EPA is still cogitating on these big picture items. Stephanie, are there any incremental steps that are being taken? Well, just a few weeks ago, EPA went forward with finalizing a rule that will set in motion the process of proposing national drinking water standards for maximum contaminant levels for PFAS and PFOA. EPA is also proposing to collect new PFAS data under the fifth unregulated contaminant monitoring rule. I would anticipate PCQ participating in this data collection just like it did for the third version of this rule. EPA issued an advance notice of proposed rulemaking requesting data on facilities that manufacture and formulate PFAS substances. This is the next step towards developing effluent limitation guidelines under the Federal Clean Water Act. So between Safe Drinking Water Act and National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, MPDS, regulation of PFAS, there will also need to be adequate lab sampling capacity and capability. There's a lot on the horizon coming for regulation with regard to PFAS. So in addition to what Stephanie covered, there is more going on at EPA. Uh, EPA is trying to decide how to address cleanup of groundwater that's contaminated with PFOA and PFOS under various federal cleanup programs, and that affects a lot of military facilities around the country. And also the agency has been trying to develop PFAS destruction guidance. So once we pull the PFAS out, how do we ensure that we can destroy it and it doesn't go back into the environment? And then the agency is doing some other big toxicity assessments, which are these huge risk assessments for a few more. Stephanie, back over to you. We've talked a lot about here what's going on at the federal level, but what's going on at the states? Yeah, really, tracking at the federal level is not going to be enough. When it comes to state regulatory actions, it requires vigilant tracking of new developments. Some states already have enforceable limits for certain PFAS in water, soil, or air, while others have non-regulatory screening levels or advisories. The Environmental Council of States 
regularly publishes an inventory of state activities, and the National Council of State Legislatures tracks PFAS legislation. Keeping tabs on these resources is very helpful, but it's also important to ensure that your team are also closely following the actions in the state most relevant to your operations. For example, you can sign up for TCAQ toxicology announcements. This is one way of keeping up. So for all the listeners, Stephanie just populated the episode notes. We'll make sure we grab links to the ECOS uh, and NCSL resources and pop them in there for reference purposes. Okay. So we know PFAS are out there. We know these are patchwork of regulatory requirements that are constantly changing at this point. What advice can we give companies facing this landscape? Well, I'll go first here, Megan. Uh, First, you know, companies really would benefit from evaluating their corporate PFAS risk profile. How so? Comprehensive PFAS due diligence is essential to obtaining a full understanding of PFAS risk facing a company. Related to due diligence is developing and implementing a program of PFAS governance with structure, content, shared management understanding, corporate information sharing, uh, protocols for monitoring and reporting, for managing PFAS stockpiles and PFAS disposal, protocols for litigation holds that might come from PFAS concerns or claims, and even approaches to securities and exchange commission disclosures. These are just a few of the issues worth exploring. Also key for companies ensuring updated policies and practices related to external engagement around PFAS. So corporate PFAS risk profile is evaluated. Check. What else? Megan, companies need to remain aware of PFAS enforcement trends. Essentially, there's three categories happening here. There's increased enforcement at the federal level, the state level, as well as private legal action. For example, EPA took 16 enforcement actions in recent years, ranging from administrative orders and CERCLA to complete removal actions. They also utilized information requests under the Toxic Substances Control Act, CERCLA, and RICRA. Likewise, EPA used its Safe Drinking Water Act Section 1431 authority to address identified imminent and substantial endangerment situations where PFAS had contaminated drinking water sources. Some state enforcement actions have begun to target PFAS contaminated sites, while others have focused on issuing information requests and placing monitoring requirements and permits. Lastly, private legal actions based on common law theories of nuisance or trespass are also being explored as ways to mitigate PFAS contamination or to seek compensation. To be sure, the class action suits and toxic tort cases are on the rise. These are all three big areas to watch. That's a lot of moving targets, Stephanie, for sure. All right, so if we had a crystal ball, because I do so wish for a crystal ball many times here in this practice, what is ahead for PFAS? I'll go ahead and take that one. It is the impending regulation of entities under the Safe Drinking Water Act and the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System arenas that will experience the most impact, in my view. There are larger public water systems that may be watching this issue, 
said, my experience is that the smaller systems are a whole different game. Safe Drinking Water Act rules are already very complex and challenging for some of these smaller systems. And it's not just the systems that we think of in terms of municipalities providing water to their customers. This can also affect companies that meet the definition of a public water system. Achieving and demonstrating compliance in both of these programs will need to be a critical focus. And by focusing on the Safe Drinking Water Act and MPDS areas, I don't mean to diminish the importance of the CERCLA and remediation programs. It's also foreseeable that current levels may be updated as additional data becomes available. And as a last thought, and a little bit of a teaser, I'll just throw out water quality standards and total maximum daily loads. Okay, that's a teaser. I cannot imagine trying to set a total maximum daily load for a water body for one of these compounds, nor state setting water quality standards for them. That would be really difficult. That makes sense, Alex. But what do you see in your crystal ball? Well, I see a lot of activity coming from the EPA. All those issues we talked about that are hanging, the EPA is going to take action on. Administrator Regan comes from a state, North Carolina, that has had a lot of PFAS issues. And so there's no time needed for a new administrator to come up to speed on this. In addition, while EPA ramps up, states are continuing to change the game. Right now, California is working on PFBS, and other states are working on other compounds. Bottom line, Megan, I think the public is going to start getting restless and expect the Biden administration to move from studying PFAS to regulating PFAS. So I'll be watching almost every day there is something in the news about the future of PFAS. Well, ladies, today's discussion has been uh, enlightening. And before we close out, I just want to flag for our listeners that the various websites that we discussed are in our episode notes as well as contact information for both Stephanie and Alex. And with that, I think we are at the end of our time together here today. Thank you both Alex and Stephanie for joining me. Thanks, Megan. It was fun. It was nice. All right. Well, with that, I'm Megan Birch. Thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you for listening to this BakerBots podcast. For more information on BakerBots practices, please visit us at bakerbots.com. For over 180 years, through 13 offices in nine countries, BakerBots has the experience, knowledge, and people to solve our clients' most significant legal issues. This presentation is provided by BakerBots LLP for educational and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice. Under the rules of certain jurisdictions, this communication may constitute attorney advertising.